Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael Wilson joins us right now. Mike Wilson, U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Do you share your colleagues' discontent? This about the equity markets. Well, uh, good morning, Tom. Good morning, all. The, like the uh, the discontent in the economy may not necessarily mean discontent in the markets. I mean, as you know, markets trade differently from the economy. And, and look, we are looking at a, a slowdown for sure as the case counts rise, potential lockdowns, and all that good stuff. Um, look, there's a there is a uh, you know while the S and P 500 is basically flat since early September. There's a raging bull market going on under the surface. This is the point we've been really trying to emphasize, that as as we look forward to next year, there's still a lot of undervalued assets within the equity market that hadn't hadn't participated yet. And that's that's the big story that's really going on in the equity market. Is it absolute or relative? Do you unload your tech to go over to materials, cyclicals, banks, and the rest, or do they participate as well? Well, we, we did that. I mean, that, that, that was the strategy. I mean, you guys were talking about, you know, stepping into the fray back in March um, being difficult. I think it was even more difficult to kind of move away from the former leaders to the laggards, right? That, that, that is, that's a real career risk for a lot of people. And I think folks have fought that as long as they can. And now it's becoming apparent that they need to consider that move. And that's what, that's what the last three weeks is really all about. The combination of an election result plus the vaccine news is now forcing people to consider the possibility that this leadership change is not temporary, that it's actually more sustainable, and positions and portfolios are just not ready for that. Capitulation. We've got two timeframes here, Mike. You and I have talked about them so many times, the near term and the medium term as well. You've had this trading range that you've developed, and it's evolved slightly as the year has progressed. Mike, can you walk us through that range right now and why you think we might be in for a test at the lower end of that range? Yeah, I mean, trying to call you know corrections in a bull market is is sometimes a fool's game, but sometimes it makes sense. So obviously, as you know, we were extremely uh, bullish from March through basically August, and we we then thought the market would go through some consolidation, and we threw out this range of 3150 to 3550, which was technically driven. Now that uh, worked really really well from you know basically August through uh, the end of October. We made a trading buy call at the low end of that range, right before the election. That worked out really well. And now we're up at the upper end of that band again, actually through it. We're at 36, 35. So, you know, we're just, we're going to be objective about this. We're not going to get dogmatic about some trading range. But look, at the end of the day, John, at 36, 35, you've baked in uh, pretty much as much upside as you can legitimately, uh, you know, sort of confirm with fundamentals, okay? The technicals are one thing. But, but also on a fundamental basis, it's hard for us to stretch it much beyond that. You have liquidity, you know, maybe surging in the market that's taking things higher. But our job is to tell our clients when the risk-reward is attractive. And right now, the risk-reward is much less attractive than it was three weeks ago. It doesn't change our view about the bull market extending into next year. And, and once again, the main message we want to leave with clients is don't focus so much on the index. Let's find the opportunities that are clearly in a bull market. And as you were talking earlier in the show, I mean, the Russell 2000 is up 20% this month. And it's just starting to have relative outperformance. That's, those are the types of things that we want to focus on for clients. 
Some uh, notes that I was reading, research notes after uh, Janet Yellen was nominated to be the next Treasury Secretary said this would turbocharge the euphoria for a longer period of time because the idea of a Treasury working more closely with the Federal Reserve, willing to run the economy hot, is good for inflation, is only going to fuel the trades that you're talking about, Russell 2000 financials. Do you agree that Janet Yellen at the Treasury is, if not a game changer, at least it really adds momentum to what we're seeing in the market? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, one of our themes this year has been that we're moving out of a what I would call a monetary policy dominant regime to a fiscal policy dominant regime. And in fact, uh, Jenny Allen and Ben Bernanke as well have, have been writing op-eds uh, for the last you know six months imploring Congress to do more fiscal. Jay Powell has also signaled that at every press conference. And so the Fed has almost you know been imploring the you know the government to say, look, we need your help this time. We we need to get more fiscal cooperation to use the cheap money to finally pull us out of this sort of low-growth environment. And putting Janet Yellen as U.S. Treasury Secretary can only help uh, that effort, in, in my view, because, you know, it, it does come down to a negotiation with Congress. And obviously Janet Yellen has tremendous street credibility, and, you know, we know who she is, She's and she also has a, a penchant for some of these programs that are more favorable to the lower-income cohort, which is exactly what uh, has been working this year, right? Getting money to the folks who need it and who will spend it. Mike Wilson, international investment now. Which inning are we in? Is it just beginning or has it been a nice pop and that's it? <laughs> well, this is another one that, you know, sort of has uh, been a bit of a widow maker for the last, you know, six or seven years in the sense that every time it tries to make a move, it just you know, gives yep. up. It's like the value versus growth phenomenon. It's the same trade, Tom. You know, and, and I think that we are at, a, at an inflection point right now for the more cyclical parts of the market to work better because there's you know, economic growth acceleration, not just here, but globally. And some of that is inflationary, too. So there's no doubt that those markets, if we're right about our fundamental economic view, then those markets should have better uh, performance over the course of the next 12 months. Best month ever on a stock 600 over in Europe this month. Unreal. Up around about 15 percent. Mike, tremendous work with the team this year. Fantastic to follow some of the research. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, sir. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley. Right now, and this comes up on the economic data that we're going to see and what John has talked about happening in the House of Commons right now with a, a Britain in recession that is a compare and contrast to Queen Anne 300 years ago. Tobias Adrian is one skilled to put perspective on this with the International Monetary Fund and Director of Monetary and Capital Markets. Dr. Adrian, out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and, I should say, the New York Federal Reserve. Tobias, I love your essay, which links in the path forward one year, two year. Let's say the path forward out to 2023, and you link it directly in to the financial stability that the Chancellor of the Exchequer desires. Can we have it both? Can we have our turkey and eat it too? Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, uh, central banks, including the Bank of England, but also the Federal Reserve and the ECB, have uh, deployed extraordinary measures uh, this year in order to <clears throat> fight this uh, terrible pandemic. And uh, that has been tremendously helpful in easing financial conditions getting financial markets to work, allowing firms and governments to borrow from markets. So that's a very, very good uh, outcome. But of course, an intended consequence of uh, this monetary policy easing is uh, for risk taking to return 
in financial markets. And in, indeed, we see that high-risk borrowers uh, can get loans, uh, but uh, you have to make sure that there's not excessive risk-taking. Right. Do you, this is really important, folks, and this goes to the blue book, the brown book, and the, and the green book of the International Monetary Fund. Have you guys calculated the percent of GDP that we're going to have to spend on this pandemic? Progressive and liberal economists would say it's a much higher percent of GDP. Do you have a statistic, Tobias? Well, yes, uh, we have looked at uh, the fiscal expenditures this year, and there were about 12 trillion globally, uh, 12 trillion. So that's, uh, depending on the economies, uh, in advanced economies, it's up to 15% of GDP that has been spent in 2020 alone on fiscal expenditures in order to cushion the economy from this terrible pandemic. And yet still people say that monetary policy is doing the heavy lifting, Tobias. So even though you do that, have that incredible fiscal expansion, still it is the idea of incredibly low interest rates and bond purchases and beyond by central banks. What are the financial stability risks of this disconnect that we keep talking about with markets flying high at records, even as we look at a pretty bleak winter? So for the moment, uh, things are in pretty good shape. Uh, banks have entered this crisis with much more capital than they entered the 2008 crisis. And um, of course, markets have come back and that has been help very helpful in terms of sustaining the recovery and sustaining the economy. Uh, we worry about uh, the next uh, three to four years if monetary accommodation is still needed, financial conditions remain easy, that could fuel risk-taking going forward and so it's really in the medium term uh, that we uh, worry that uh, there uh, could be uh, some uh, degree of excessive risk taking in some corners of it's the market. Tobias, as you pointed out, though, this was the objective of policy to divorce financial yeah. conditions from underlying fundamentals. You used the word excessive. Can you define the word excessive and who gets to decide? whether it's excessive. Absolutely. It's a balance. It's a balance. So you do want lending, you do want to support the economy, but you want it to be measured. And so getting the balance right is really what is uh, on the table here. So in our view, uh, uh, supportive monetary policy is going to be appropriate for some time in many countries for many years, uh, but that has to be combined with regulatory measures that make sure that there isn't uh, excessive risk-taking in terms of uh, risky lending uh, or the build-up of leverage. Are you thinking about the macro-prudential tools around the housing markets that we've seen before in, for instance, the UK, those kind of things to pass? Is that where your head's at at the moment? Yeah, it, it would cover, uh, uh, of course, uh, the banks, uh, the non-banks, uh, as well as uh, the household sector and the corporate sector. So you really have to look at okay. uh, the economic system as a whole. Tobias, come back soon. Love to continue the conversation. Tobias Adrian there, IMF Director for Monetary and Capital Markets. Dr. Mann joins now from Citigroup. Dr. Mann, on a Thanksgiving, we're supposed to take a bigger, broader view with you. Somebody mentioned there another major bank looking for zero, looking for slowdown, looking for recession. Can you be so grim as to tell us we're going to begin to an approach in NBER recession? 
Well, of course, the MBER recession is the two uh, consecutive quarters of negative growth. That's the official word. Um, I don't think we're going to be looking at that. Uh, that doesn't imply that we aren't going to be looking at a very difficult situation uh, for a lot of people in the market. I think that you have said that you've um, you have this two 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 uh, stage um, recovery. One is manufacturing doing quite well. Um, you know, having a trade deficit and durable and durable goods or capital goods is actually a good sign for business investment going forward. But of course, the labor market, the weakness, the continued weakness um, of the labor market is something that is going to drag the whole economy down. So, you know, you've got two speeds. One is extremely slow, actually in reverse. I mean, that's what the initial claims is telling us. That's in reverse. The, the uh, capital goods trade deficit is actually positive. Um, but that's going to keep us from being in, um, uh, you know, official recession. But it's going to be very grim. Uh, I think we, we can't... Catherine, we can't can you give us... The near term, medium term outlook then at City for you guys right now, just your base case in terms of the outlook, the contrast between the two. Well, as I say, I, I've uh, you know sort of outlined the fact that the uh, continuing claims um, and the initial claims are pointing to a very difficult period of time over the next uh, you know few months possibly into the second quarter of next year. Um, our official forecast is that the U.S. economy will have returned to the pre-COVID level of GDP in Q2 of next year. But I think that that has to be um, considered in light of, uh, you know, this this uh, burgeoning cases uh, caseload in uh, around the, around the country. That's clearly going to weigh on that on that forecast. Catherine, we keep talking about how markets are ignoring the near term, looking yeah. to a brighter period of time with a vaccine and traveling and more jobs. And the question that we keep coming back to on surveillance every morning is what is the damage, the longer term damage being done by the virus that is spreading at an exponential rate? And we're seeing that that's affecting the employment picture dramatically with worse than expected uh, jobless claims coming in. What is the scarring? How do you measure that? Well, there's, you know, there are different ways of measuring it in, in the in the labor market data, but, um, you know, the, the different use and so forth. But I, I really think that it's 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 the labor market. It is um, the small businesses that are uh, disappearing and it will take time to, to bring that back. But I also think that um, there are some other potential uh, changes in the way the economy works that is a consequence of this divergence between what's happening uh, to, to companies um, sort of in, in terms of the real side and what's happening to companies uh, in terms of the financial side. So one of the things that we are seeing is that uh, the companies that are uh, flush uh, and have done well um, are buying their competitors so that, you know, M&A. So we're seeing more M&A. We're going to we're looking at more of that coming forward uh, over the next uh, six months anyway. And and so when we come out the other side, the structure of the economy looks very different or potentially quite different with more concentration. Um, that, of course, is not good for uh, labor market, uh, people in the labor market being able to get their wages and, and that sort of thing once they get mm -hmm. employed. Um, and so consolidation is great for markets. It's great for stock prices, but it is really bad for both um, innovation and for workers. So longer term, the type of M&A concentration that we might end up with six months from now is not something that, that we're happy about in the longer term. Catherine Mann, a fancy question here on foreign exchange and your excellence in international economics. What happens is you end up having dollar dynamics which harm countries, they complain, and you get an abrupt reversal as well. With a weak dollar, 
I guess their currencies get stronger. We had one house today go to a yen 95, which is a shockingly strong yen. Is that what's in store for us next year? Our strong currencies where other nations scream at President Biden? You know, I think that um, there's a, a general view in the market that uh, dollar depreciation is uh, is sort of in the cards, uh, baked in almost. Um, but I think we have to look at a lot of variation in how economies are going to be performing over the next year. We we do see a lot of differences in um, potential improvement in the economies over the course of the year uh, based on uh, policy differences, based on virus dif uh, vaccine acceptance uh, differences. So I think it's it's um, I think it's premature to say that, you know, we're looking at a Plaza Louvre situation where um, the dollar gets too weak and then uh, everybody has to uh, go in and uh, try to reverse course. I think there's a lot more choppy waters. I think it depends on whether you're looking at Latin America or looking at Asia in terms of emerging markets, um, and even differences between Europe um, and, and Japan against the, against the dollar. I think we've got a lot of different factors at play. Getting some reaction to the data dump of the last 11 minutes. Kathy Jones, a good friend of this program of Charles Schwab, mm -hmm. weighing in saying jobless claims up to 778. Not a good sign, but durable goods orders rise more than expected. Same old story, manufacturing good, but job market, not so good. And Catherine, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Your thoughts on how long that kind of dynamic can persist? These two different economies that seem to be persisting at the moment, at least, not just in the United States, but in Europe, too. Well, manufacturing is really being supported by um, both the policies that were put into place to uh, replace worker incomes at a time when they couldn't spend it on anything else. So that's why we're seeing manufactured goods looking so good, uh, retail sales uh, looking so good, uh, or well, were good, looking so good in terms of um, in terms of the bounce off the bottom. Um, and, and then the furloughing schemes in Europe, these are all sort of designed to uh, replace worker incomes, but of course they have limited things to spend it on and, and retail sales is, is one of the ways they're spending it, durable goods. Um, so there's that. Um, then of course there's the replacing the inventories associated with the uh, lockdown periods. Both of those, uh, at least in the United States, are coming to an end, uh, especially the the support programs um, designed to support people's uh, income without any kind of um, kind of uh, move towards a uh, either replacement of those incomes or move towards another strategy of, of spending uh, tax changes and regulatory changes that are going to promote business investment to promote employment. Um, then, then we do have this situation where um, ultimately the uh, lack of consumption, as, as Michael McKee mentioned earlier, the lack of consumption is going to drag down the business side as well. So you can't go out too far on the limb with manufacturing doing well and employment doing poorly. Ultimately, you know, you fall off. Catherine, always wonderful to get your perspective. Catherine Mann there of Citigroup. Thank you. This Wednesday before Thanksgiving, a time normally of immense travel. I call it the fourth Wednesday of, uh, of November. It's just simple. The college kids come home. There's all the things we've done over the years. And then there's a pandemic. It has hit no one harder than the hospitality industry and particularly how we transport in our business and hospitality. And that would be travel. 
So it'd be good not to speak to a CEO talking their book. And boy, we've done a great job on that. Thank you, Guy Johnson, for leading that coverage uh, worldwide. But how about talking to somebody who single-handedly changed how we travel? His name is Brian Kelly. He's never gotten the credit from the straight business community about what the points guy has done. It was a website. It was a joke. Everybody laughed at him until they realized J.P. Morgan was listening and Mr. Diamond was taking notes when Brian Kelly opened his mouth. Brian, you were unprepared for this. What are your thoughts into 2021? Well, Tom, just first off, thanks for giving me that intro instead of just saying I'm an influencer. An influencer, <laughs> yeah, big deal. That's next. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, no, this year has been absolutely wild for, for consumers traveling. Um, but I do see hope on the horizon. You know, just in talking to our millions of readers and looking on social media, I do feel this bubble of revenge travel that's, that's going to come up, I think, in 2021. So I do see good things on the horizon. When we look at things like Qantas setting up rules, do you feel your world will be the rule makers that force 100 percent use of vaccination? You know, I travel to Ghana quite a bit and I have to show my yellow fever vaccination. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if countries, you know, this virus it's crazy how quickly it can spread once you think you get it under control. All it takes is a couple quick mistakes and it can spread like wildfire. So, yeah, I, I do see more countries putting in a virus passport, you know, once these billions of doses are out there and we can actually track who got it. Brian, I hope that I can join the wave of revenge travel. I think a lot of people are looking forward to get back, uh, getting back on planes and seeing the world. Uh, I am wondering, though, if it's going to be more expensive. The hospitality industry, as Tom was saying, has gotten hit very hard. How willing do you think, based anecdotally on what you've seen so far, will they be to continue some of these points and loyalty programs when they need cash, they need the money? Well, it's funny because these points and loyalty programs bring in billions of dollars in upfront cash. You know, we saw Hilton and Marriott sell billions this year for future use to the credit card companies. So, you know, the, the, the loyalty programs need people to use those points. So we've been seeing incredible promotions. Even this Black Friday, Virgin Atlantic is selling their miles at a half off. You can fly New York or L.A. to London basically $1,000, $1,500 when you factor in these promotions. So it's a great time for consumers. And I don't foresee, you know, prices going up for a long time because simply, you know, it's supply and demand. And there's still so many people sitting it out until they can get a vaccine, which may not be till the end of next year. So it's a good time for deals. All right. But, but something's got to give, Brian, right? I mean, we're looking at a market that's been decimated. If you look at the losses in the airline industry that's projected, uh, that were projected this week, billions and billions of dollars. How are they going to recoup that? And if they don't, does that mean no soda charging for your luggage? I mean, I'm just talking about the practical implications of the quality of life aspects of these hospitality industries. Well, it's funny because the airlines have actually made it better for consumers in waiving most change fees. You can now book a, the cheapest flight and change it for free. They say that's going to be forever. But I agree with you. Something A shoe's going to drop at some point. But the way they're doing that is by managing capacity, by, you know, retiring old and efficient jets. You know, they're real, the industry has been right sized, um, but I don't foresee right. any punitive changes to consumers anytime soon. Yeah, but Brian, we talked to KLM CEO this week and he, the KLM and Air France are talking to the Dutch government about a bailout. And there's a dance in the United States, Southwest Air making headlines in the last 24 hours. From where you sit, Brian Kelly, do you just assume that we're going to see more government 
aid to the industry to get them to the other side of the Point Sky Bridge? I don't see it. You know, we saw Norwegian Air got the big no yeah. from their government. Uh, the U.S. Uh, has since, you know, not really been willing to extend, although the, the U.S. Uh, CEOs are in Washington every other day begging for it. You know, I think, you know, these publicly traded companies, you know, right. have learned a lesson that you should probably stock up a little bit more on cash. I don't foresee another big bailout. I think they just have to right size well, things until the demand returns. I mean, this this summer, just because of the pandemic, Lisa was going through the Adirondacks. I don't, Brian, if you know, the Adirondacks are mountains north of New York City, <laughs> and she was are doing like cano yeah. yeah, canoeing and portage and all that. She's trying to use her point miles off a major bank to help her pay for the portage between the lakes. <laughs> what is seriously? What are the banks going to do here? You I mean you change this, Brian? What is the next step for the banks? You get 200,000 points. You know, it's funny you say that the banks this summer really took a break from big promotions, you know, yeah. I think because the credit risk was just so unknown. You know, are people going to be defaulting left and right? It appears that's not the case, although we're not quite sure how many consumers are defaulting because people have been given so much forgiveness. But the banks came back with huge offers this fall. We saw big sign up bonuses. And I, I have seen a shift towards more flexible points instead of uh, credit cards yeah. that offer you know, airline miles now, you know, even Chase is offering to use your points on groceries at a really rich rate. So I foresee the, the credit card companies allowing those points to be more flexible for use on things like merchandise. Yeah, I'll tell you, Brian, through this pandemic, thanks for keeping the spirit up. It's really wonderful during a pandemic to see Mr. Kelly in the Maldives and he got there for $142 and six gajillion points. That <laughs> Lisa, it's I actually never. I'm going to Rwanda this Christmas. That's of course, my, that's of course you. Are. Why did I? Why did I? Talk why am I surprised? <laughs> Brian Kelly, go away. The points guy <laughs> traveling to all the places. Lisa and I. Okay. Would kill to. Tom, I just want to make a Bloomberg surveillance correction. Please, oh, okay. Please. You cannot use your points to portage. I learned this the hard way. I tried. I can't because nope. they, get, they get the truck out and put the canoe <laughs> on top of the Jeep. So yeah, you need your points uh, to portage. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 